When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Today's a special one because I get to chat to not one but two friends. After 150 or so episodes, it's nice to be able to shake things up a little. And today I'm talking to the guys at Crawl Space Podcast. That's Lance Reinstierner and Tim Pilieri. They talk twice a week in their podcast about all sorts of mad mysteries, oddities, and true crime stories. They're known for being extremely knowledgeable on all these things. So I thought. I'd put some questions to them. We talk about the case of Maura Murray, who went missing, and her her case is delved into very much in their other podcast, Missing Maura Murray. We speak about the legend of Mothman, much to Lance's dismay, uh, but Tim loves a bit of Mothman mystery. But we also delve into why people enjoy true crime, what it is about these stories that we like to solve or or, or if it gives us sort of practice for a zombie apocalypse or whatever it is, you know, there has to be a reason that people are so engrossed with or by true crime. We get into the social psychology and I share some of the stuff I've learned from psychologists who came on this show. Uh, it makes for quite a nice dynamic, three people on the podcast, and I think it turns into more of a nice chat than a hard-hitting interview. So I hope this brings you entertainment, happiness, joy, excitement, frivolity... Uh, as well as true value and wisdom from the excellent Lance and Tim. Make sure to follow them both on Twitter and give Cruel Space a listen. It has a great TikTok and Twitter as well. Got some more big ones coming up in the next few weeks too. Catch my bonus section with Lance and Tim too by signing up on patreon.com slash Gold. You guys are keeping this thing going. For now though, you're on the edge of true crime and missing cases with Lance and Tim from Cruel Space. This is, I've got a, a three people on for the, think of that everyone for the first, it's a, it's a crawl space guy. So, and I know them and we're friends. So I thought we'll do both of you. And I wonder how my girlfriend Holly's going to edit this. Is that, because do you guys ever edit three? Also say hello and introduce yourselves. <laughs> <laughs> hello. I'm Tim Polari from Crawl Space and Missing. And uh, I'm here with my pal Lance. Yeah, you were waiting for Lance to quickly say stuff, and he didn't there, did he? That's right. Yeah. Well, I'm, I seem to be having some technical difficulties with my recorder over here, but I think it's recording anyway. Um, what's going on? Yeah, this is uh, this is so fun. Um, one, I, I I'm enjoying the fact that you open the show with a technical reference to uh, <laughs> recording <laughs> before yeah. introducing your guests. That's very. Um, avant-garde people want to hear what's going on they want behind the scenes don't they they want to know the, the, the how the sausage is made well i guess the answer there is yes we frequently we frequently record with three uh people sometimes more it does take a touch longer to edit because of the three tracks um or more uh as opposed to two though mm, that's the thing and it's just the video <laughs> it's, the, it's the video but anyway people listening you're you know what you're right they're not interested in <laughs> lance how are you doing are you stressed out because we, we, we no, we, we edit this as, as i was saying so it doesn't matter if you want to if you want to get stressed by stuff off air yeah no I'm, i i just don't see uh uh it doesn't look like i'm getting any levels on my zoom over here so i'm gonna have to cut over here hmm. oh, okay weird i'm gonna have to figure that out later on but this is your first threesome yeah, yeah, I think it is my first, uh, f- f- what is it, foray into a menage a trois. <laughs> so, yeah, oh, it's, 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 it's going beautifully so far. And I think, you know what, after doing 150-odd episodes, um, it's time, isn't it, to have like a few voices. You know what, though, when I listen to these podcasts and you hear all these different voices and stuff, you do... Um, you do forget who the people are, don't you? Like people who don't know who you are already. So some people, what listeners already know the call space guys, but because it's new people, you just you just get used to like okay, one voice is lower voice and one voice is higher voice. I don't know which of yours is which. Mine's the lower one. 
Yeah. No, I think mine's the lower one. Mine's a much lower one. Mine's, well, mine's way lower. Because <laughs> most people listen on audio. They're just going, yeah, I don't know who these people are. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we we do some pretty good podcasts. I, I like to think. We we do Crawl Space, which I think is somewhat comparable to On the Edge with Andrew Gold, and that we do like to cover some fringe topics uh, from time to time. But we also have a podcast called Missing, which is strictly about missing people and missing justice. And that started as Missing Maura Murray back in the summer of 2015. Tell me about Maura. What was it? Missing Maura Money. Money. <laughs> um, missing Maura Murray. Yeah, Maura Murray, Murray yeah. was a uh, 21-year-old college student from Massachusetts when she went missing in the White Mountains of New Hampshire in February of 2004. And... Um, very much the reason why we dove into that case was because of the online community that developed um, because of this uh, disappearance and, and Moore's case being so mysterious. There was a lot of rabbit holes to go down. So the online community that developed naturally was fascinating to us. And initially, that was what we launched Missing Maura Murray to be was sort of an exploration of that culture, the, I guess, web sleuth culture, but also specifically the people who look into Missing Maura, or, uh, Maura Murray's disappearance. Yeah, and it was in a time before um, citizen sleuthing was a big thing. This was before the Golden State Killer. It was before Michelle McNamara and that wave of individuals who weren't associated with law enforcement, weren't necessarily investigative journalists, but they had this fascination with solving cold cases. Uh, so that that happened, you know, relatively recently in, in you know, historically speaking, uh, and we had no idea what that was. And for us, the case of Moore Murray going missing and the outside of just the uh, incredible nature of the story itself with the car in a single car accident at the base of the white mountains in new hampshire and no evidence of her uh running off into the woods no evidence of her existing beyond that time you know in february of 2004 that was that was really fascinating but it was our, our introduction to these people we would read the blogs and the blog posts James Renner was probably the only person who was putting information out there to the public about the case and working on it. He was an investigative journalist and a writer, and people would go back and forth on his website, on his blog. And Tim and I were just like, this is incredible. These, this is a remarkable community and a remarkable energy. Uh, and we wanted to do a documentary about the folks that were involved with all of this, but they're very private. You know, they have their opinion. It's something that they do after work and they, they don't want to necessarily be a, a spokesperson for, I guess, the opinion and then the case and their opinion on the case. Uh, so that's why we started the podcast. These are the true crime fans, right? These are, and they ask quite specific, like they're a specific group of people, the true crimeies, the true, no one's ever called them true crimeies, have they? But I've just <laughs> done that. Um, I was at the at Crime Con recently in London. You guys were at the one in the States, weren't you? Yeah, that's right. Was it nice meeting all these people in person or, or, or horrible, just sort of brushing them off you? Don't touch me. <laughs> no, it's lovely. Oh, uh, no, it's definitely don't touch me. <laughs> <laughs> No, I feel completely in my element uh, at CrimeCon talking with people who um, listen to our shows and, and know the cases that we talk about, you know, basically, or can talk about in our sleep. Why does true crime bring people together in such a way? Why, and why do you think people get so sort of obsessed with it? Oh, that's a great question. And you get asked that a lot when you do these true crime topics. And I think in the beginning, my opinion on that was everyone loves a mystery and they love not only the idea of a mystery, but solving a mystery. Everybody loves, you know, a Sherlock Holmes whodunit. And if you're the one that can solve it, you have achieved, you have achieved something that like is in naturally inside you. Everybody wants to solve the puzzle. And I think with the true crime, the fact that you're doing it and the result of it might bring some closure to families is good. I think there's a little ego involved in it, obviously. People want to be the one who solves it. Uh, and I, I think at some point it transitioned into more of a statement on how to say this without sounding 
I don't want to insult anybody, but it, it's it started to transition or part of it started to transition into a statement about law enforcement and how they're so overwhelmed and so overworked. And you hear all the time about if someone's not working on a case after a certain amount of time, it basically goes off the priority ladder. So I feel like there's there's a lot of uh, there's a, a, a stronger spotlight put on law enforcement now, too. So there's a little bit of that as well. What do you think, Tim? Yeah, I mean, personally, I find the element of technology and I guess cha- like constantly changing technology really interesting um, when you look, especially when you look back at an older case. And, you know, we're talking about Maura Murray's case. So that one uh, I'll, I'll stick with like. You know, when she went missing back in 2004 and in the years right after that, there there was Reddit uh, or maybe not Reddit, but um, web sleuths, message boards that popped up and a couple other forums. Um, and, and it's fascinating to look back at that stuff now and see how, you know, the, how it doesn't matter how much things change. Um, a lot of those comments are essentially identical to you know, what's happening today on forums in that case. And I, I think as, as, as well, there was, um, um, if I may opine on your, your own topic and subject and stuff, I, I had this guy called Paul Bloom on, who's a philosopher, uh, professor from Yale. And he said that, because the ones you're talking about, about solving them, which I think you guys do focus on a lot, like, and that's fascinating, like the pattern seeking and solving human mind. But he was talking about, um, you know, true crime and horror movies and stuff and like horrible things that have happened to people in the past. You can't solve it. It's already been solved, but people want to hear it. And he was saying that he thinks that's the human brain gets some dopamine uh, for watching those kinds of things because it prepares them for if something like that ever might happen to them, which is apparently why so many women um, are into true crime. Do you find that as, as, does that ring true? And are there more women listening than, than men? Oh yeah. Yeah. That, that's oh, really? definitely true. Yeah, probably like three, you know, 75% or, or 80%, I would say, of our audience wow. is uh, is women. That high. Well, look at us, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> I do think there's an element of safety. You know, you hear these stories, so you kind of know what randomness to um, somehow be prepared for. And I think on the dopamine thing, we you know, we have heard from other podcasters who cover um, like only solved cases and, and so, or actually podcasters who cover both solved and unsolved cases. They always say that their solved cases are more popular, um, than, than their unsolved. And I think it's for that reason, you know, you kind of want to see the story develop and you want to see it end. Um, that isn't really the lane that we're in though, uh, with what we do at Crawlspace and, um, missing. We're uh, also affiliated with a nonprofit called Private Investigations for the Missing, and it was founded by uh, missing person Brianna Maitland's father. And so a lot of the cases that we cover on missing come in by way of that nonprofit and get filtered through some investigators, and sometimes they're assigned private investigators. And then a lot of times we will podcast about it, and in the ones that are currently assigned private investigators cases for private investigations for the missing that have investigators assigned they use the podcast as an investigative tactic to see if there are comments um on on the video or on social media um and that that is one way that uh you know it's kind of a a fun way to use social media and i guess emerging technology in helping. Can I uh, just go back to the guest that you said you had on that referenced horror movies and maybe that was a way. Can you just open that up a little more? Because I didn't. Are you saying that he said he has a theory that people, when they watch something like a horror movie, it almost trains them to be prepared for something like that that might happen in reality but they don't realize that they're doing it yeah yeah so so he's professor paul bloom and he wrote uh he's written many books but his most recent was called the sweet spot uh which was why and i don't remember what the after the colon bit was you know they're always the long bits aren't they so it's like the sweet spot colon you know why we enjoy suffering something 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 and it's 
basically he he says that we enjoy all different kinds of suffering and he goes into which sort of suffering we we like for example uh maybe spicy food uh really hot showers um there's all different reasons for it and one of them he looks into is like horror films and things like that and one of the interesting th things he found was that people who like horror films don't actually get less scared than people who say, oh, I can't watch that. It makes me too scared. It's just that they enjoy the feeling of being scared more. I know some people just don't get scared by the movies, but in general, it was that's what he found. But his theory was evolutionarily the reason that people are so uh, addicted to watching these. Because why would you watch these scary, horrible things? What, what entertainment is there in there? And for him, it is that as you say you know without realizing it it is that your brain is trying to train itself it's it's looking for anything gruesome like that we wouldn't see horror film as cavemen or whatever but you might see a horrible thing that happens to somebody and you would want to have a look at that to learn for it not to happen to you so that's why the brain releases dopamine to make you more curious about those things that is really fascinating and is that something that you are in in line with uh i mean look it makes it makes sense to me Look, people, guests come on this podcast, they tell me stuff and I go, oh, that sounds probably true. But I don't I don't know. What do I know? I'm just some guy and he's a Yale professor. But I think, you know, he, he would always say this is a theory. Uh, I, I think these things are very, we don't know. There's probably a whole mix of reasons, but it does. I mean, what do you think? Does it, it does seem to chime with the, the very female, apart from your good looks, the female demographic that you guys have, uh, because they are the people who, who might be victims of these crimes. Although I think men probably are as well aren't they often yeah i i think um it's really interesting because when i started my answer it was the generic answer that i get because i didn't have any other way to put it where i just believe that people love solving a mystery and then that kind of gave it a little bit more meat and so i am i am in line with that i think that it is something that is uh realistic to explore and and a great example is like why do people eat spicy foods it hurts you. It, it, you know, you're sweating through it. Why are you doing this? Because it is releasing uh, something. It's, it's releasing like an endorphin. Yeah. The spicy food thing, I think he was saying it's also about, I think that was from his book, because I have to read all these books for this thing. And I, you know how it is, you know, remember when you did like exams at school, you like forget immediately after the exam, all of it. So you retain like 0.1% of the whole thing. But I think there was also this thing of like uh, human consciousness lasts, like like a moment of being conscious has somehow been defined and calculated by scientists as two seconds. Two, two seconds is your window of consciousness in every moment, if that makes any sense. And how happy you are, how good you feel is often about the contrast between those two seconds and the previous and the next two seconds. So you're just, that's why you're always comparing to other people. You're always comparing the year you have with the year you had last year, but you're also doing it second by second. So you burn yourself with like hot water because it feels so good. The, the two seconds afterwards apparently although uh, that doesn't ring as true to me because i feel like the hot water itself is so nice so i don't know like, a lot of it's theory and i suppose it will vary from person to person but i, I think what you said as well lance the, the the i mean it's the patent seeking mind so i think that also has an evolutionary basis of like wanting to solve crimes and you know the sherlock holmes stuff so i guess it's a combination of all of that right yeah, anything that puts me on the same in the same conversation as a yale professor i'll take <laughs> yeah tim what do you think yeah i i could see it i mean i i feel like like a roller coaster does that fit the same um sort of category i guess like you enjoy the fear but it's almost like you get the rush only when it ends and you're safe right yeah so i mean if yeah evolutionarily why would we god some people are listening to this going these three guys talking about this. they don't know anything <laughs> no qualifications no university whatever then they're saying so, and here i am going yes a person told me this on a podcast so this is <laughs> probably true the roller coasters yeah well i imagine that kind of fear i don't know <laughs> <laughs> There's probably all sorts of things, isn't there? Maybe fear was good uh, evolutionarily because, uh, in in terms of roller coasters, because sometimes you have to go out and if you if you're just scared, if you just if you don't embrace the fear, you you won't go and explore. Maybe that's another reason, you know. And when we explored and found new places to live and food and things like that, just um, don't know. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think some of it just comes down to simple storytelling. You know, people like hearing stories too. And I think I think that um, dopamine rush, I could see that happening possibly more in the solved cases um, than the unsolved cases. You know, it kind of ties a nice little bow on it. I mean, even horror movies, even though they're not usually 
um, happy endings. At least there is an ending. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched, or tweeted. Now imagine all of that data being crawled through, collected, and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about, but in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Did you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell your data? The worst part is they don't have to tell you who they're selling it to or get your consent. One of these data points is your IP address. Data harvesters use your IP to uniquely identify you and your location. But with ExpressVPN, my connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server and my IP address is masked. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it more difficult for third parties to identify me and harvest my data. And the best part is how easy ExpressVPN is to use. No matter what device you're on, phone, laptop or smart TV, all you have to do is tap one button to get protected. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com heretics and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash heretics. Go to expressvpn.com slash heretics to learn more. Hey, it's Andrew. If you're enjoying Heretics, there's another podcast I want to recommend to you, especially if climate change, global conflicts and an upcoming election are making you feel like we're on the brink of disaster. What Could Go Right is hosted by Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and executive director Emma Varvalukas. On What Could Go Right, the hosts sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues without resorting to pessimism or despair that we hear so often. Instead, they look back at how far society has come and look forward at what it will take to achieve an even brighter future. Is progress on the way? They may not have all the answers, but on What Could Go Right, they're asking the key questions. Tune in to hear interviews with upcoming guests like writer Coleman Hughes, CNN host Fareed Zakaria, and economist Alison Schrager. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, join them every Wednesday on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts. I think the uh, the release of uh, the adrenaline and the cortisol that's in your brain when you're on that roller coaster, when you get that fear um, emotion that happens, you you know that it, it's a hormone, right? That's released the 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 adrenaline, the endorphins, like that is something that's that's firing out of your brain. And there's a you know, so now you're talking about like a scientific like chemical thing that's happening in your body, and it could be very comparable and probably is comparable you you have people who are adrenaline junkies right so it's like a, it's like a drug it's like the 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 first time you do it it's so great and then it's like well i got to up it i got to keep doing you know i got to keep keep uh, upping the ante for my for my uh, adrenaline release yeah and those people back in the tribal times would have been like they they would have just know everything because they would have soaked up all the knowledge about all the bad stuff that can happen i had a really interesting um uh, when I had a psychopath on on the show called Emmy Thomas, and I always remember just she sort of blew my mind a bit because I remember saying like, "How do you enjoy movies and stuff with, if you don't have empathy?" She has no empathy for the characters. She doesn't care about the characters. Particularly, we were talking about horror films and stuff, and I was like, "How do you? How can you enjoy it? How, how can you get into the mind of the directors and the the actors and stuff if you don't have empathy?" And she was just like, "You've got it all wrong." I, I was going to do her accent. I thought I won't. But she was like, y you've got it all wrong. Uh, no, okay. Um, <laughs> but she said, you, you got it all wrong. When you're scared in a film, it's not it's not because you're worried about those characters, although I would actually argue with her that to an extent it is. But she said, it's not because you're empathizing with them because plenty of things happen in movies, like sudden scares, sudden things jumping out, that you're not scared because of the, you're feeling bad for the characters. You're scared because you were just scared. It has scared you. Um, and that sort of blew my mind a bit. And I was, that got me thinking, well, but why? Why do we go and do that? Well, that, that's interesting. 
I like how we uh, had emailed for several days before this interview trying to come up with you wanted like a few topics and and this isn't even close to what we had decided on and I love it I think it's a it's a fun conversation because uh, this is not planned we're, we're we're using life examples to forward this conversation that's super interesting um, which is why I think your show is so great oh thank uh, you <laughs> but that is um that is an interesting thing that that woman said uh, right. She's talking about the difference between a jump, a jump scare in a movie and relating to a main character and not wanting that main character to go through something difficult and bad mm -hmm. and possibly die because you are expressing empathy to a character. So that does happen in movies. If it, if the character is well-developed, you understand it's fictional, you know, it's fictionalized. Why do people cry at movies? Because they have empathy for what happened, you know? You you ident you identify it's fiction, but you can still have an emotion for it. It's interesting that she used a jump scare though. So she is affected by jump scares. I, yeah, she she well to an extent. Yeah, I think because it's all on the spectrum as well. Being a psychopath, so I think nobody is a hundred percent that way. I think they so she's she's like enough on the spectrum to be considered one by society, but she will get a little tingling. And those guys, the psychopaths, are adrenaline junkies, so they do mad things. I read her book, and some of the stuff she did was horrible. She talks about just drowning stuff in a pool, like she saw an opossum that was in her pool, and she just sort of slowly pushed it under the water just to see, just curious. But she also did things like riding on, you know, jumping on the top of cars when friends of hers were driving them and stuff like that very risk they're risk takers her favorite film ever because i had to ask her that then i was like what's your favorite film um and also i was, I was about the empathy i think she would argue and i don't know if she would be right that when you feel empathy for those like you know you feel emotional because something bad happened to someone in the film maybe what you're really doing is just you're imagining it's happening to you and you're getting sad and maybe that is what empathy is anyway and so it's a whole but her favorite film is vertigo did you ever see that yeah yes yeah, a weird one yeah it's great it, that's a great, great <laughs> film so what she likes about it was that um was it hitchcock it's hitchcock isn't it yep yes is that there's a i mean I'm not, if, if this is a spoiler but if you've not seen it it's like 60 years ago now so you've the spoiler term i think has run out but <laughs> I, think it's, I think it's past the um the <laughs> statute of limitations on that one. it is isn't it you, you're gonna have to be anything before the 1970s or 60s i think you can spoil it but somebody who's supposed to be dead is not or something you know at the end and she was like i love that he manipulated us hitchcock and he like was like screw you i'm making you think this and that's how she thinks so weird isn't it i was gonna ask you if we could guess what movie was, was her favorite movie and oh, no. i don't know if i would have uh I think I might have guessed like maybe Psycho. I would, I probably would have said that as a joke. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's that would have been maybe that is one of her favorite. Hey, you know what people are thinking now though? Because you were talking about tying up loose ends and solved and all that kind of thing. So what what has happened with Mora uh, Money? Mora <laughs> <More> Murray. Mora <laughs> Murray. Um, yeah. Mora <laughs> Murray's case is still unsolved. Um, at at the time of this recording in 2022. Um, yeah, it's, it's been a long time. Her sister, Julie Murray, has uh, taken up the fight and advocating for her sister's case and is doing um, a great job, especially on TikTok, where I've, I've seen some of her videos that are really um, creative and like just great use of the information and trying to reach people. You know, it's, it, it, I think it's really effective. Uh, but unfortunately, it is still unsolved. Now, let me ask you something on, on the last topic, uh, a, a psychopath, right? Do you think there are some like evolutionary benefits to, uh, to having less empathy? I'm not saying I want that, but I'm just asking that question, throwing it out there. I, I don't know about evolutionarily, but I would probably, and I would say societally, definitely less. I, I think, uh, in society, God, I think I, I'm hearing listeners go, God, it's going to be one of those ones where he talks about his his thoughts a lot. Switch off. Don't want to hear that. <laughs> None of this pseudoscience. In society, I think society, okay, the, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, right? It's a really obvious, it's something you hear since you're a kid. You hear that. You, you never, I never really thought about it too much. I started thinking about it more often recently. Um, if you think about when society has gone wrong, and wrong is subjective, but there are there are times when I think all of us can agree, the Nazis, probably the Soviets, uh, Mao, all these different people, we can all agree they've gone wrong. In most cases, like it wasn't, 
it wasn't people sitting around going like, Mwahaha, we're going to be evil and do these horrible things to the Jews or whatever. They were thinking the Jews are the bad guys who are doing this and we're the righteous good guys, uh, the Spanish Inquisition, the Soviet, the SS, uh, all these people, we're the good guys, we're going to, you know. So I think often it's that if you're too empathetic, it might cloud judgment. And I think that's probably happening in some of the sort of culture wars today, though I won't say lest I be harangued and attacked and murdered. Uh, but sometimes instead of science and facts, we can be misled. So I think you need, you need a bit of, but if you don't have any empathy, then you'd get a bunch of scientific people just going, well, we shall lead the tribe and anyone weak will be left behind. So you probably need to have a bit of both, right? Of course. I think that there's a balance with everything that you need to have the understanding that there's gray areas and not a black and white uh, scenario every single time. And every decision is a difficult decision if it's going to be, you know, impactful to society. So, um, but I would say like being a devil's advocate in this conversation and presenting another question from the other side, what would be the problem with a society that says, if you're not strong enough, you don't survive. Well, I think on the surface, there would be a lot more violence. Um, you know, I think, I think the kind of person who doesn't have um, a lot of empathy doesn't hesitate as much um, when fa being faced with the thought of hurting someone or not. You know, I think... Um, even in what we do, Lance, like, and Andrew, like, uh, if we were to just like, say, tweet out our opinions on certain cases, and we think this guy did it, and, you know, like, and things like that. Um, like, I guarantee you, we'd get more followers. <laughs> now, it wouldn't be ethically or, you know, uh, better, you know, and we'd get a ton of blowback. But if we're the kind of people who don't have that constant empathy, then why would we care? We would, I mean, actually we wouldn't, we'd just be like, Oh great. More followers. I think that's a really good point. It's a great question as well. Cause it stumped me. I like those questions. I'm like, Oh, cause I thought you were going to say what I hear a lot, which is like, what's the problem with everybody having empathy? And I'd be like, Oh, but that's what I said. Cause the Stasi and all that, um, they thought they had him, but that's really interesting. But I suppose like, so the thing about humans is we're a really social animal and social cohesion was really important. I was reading recently, um, that, um, initially, obviously, as you see with monkeys and stuff, it's believed that we were into um, like grooming as in like sort of licking each other's heads or whatever mad thing they used to do. Uh, and that was like part of social cohesion. It was a way that tribes would sort of get together. It was gave, gave apart from meals and stuff, it was an excuse to get together and be together. And that was, that was what kept tribes together. Uh, but apparently it's quite time consuming all the grooming and doesn't work. Uh, the dynamic doesn't really work once you go past 70 or so in a group and our groups apparently went to about 150. So groom, uh, grooming became, it got replaced by gossip. So gossip became the big thing. And for gossip to be uh, interesting and for it to work as social cohesion, we also needed to be really curious people and I suppose quite empathetic people. Because if you've got no empathy, you're not going to be really interested in what anyone's telling you about their lives, which to be fair, a lot of us aren't anyway when we listen to other people. Um, and I suppose what's good for the tribe in that sense is probably what's good for the individual within it. And those individuals and those tribes will pass on their genes more. Because if, if it's just... Uh, yeah, if it, if it's not so, if you don't have, if there's a tribe without so much social cohesion, I think it might not do so well as a team when they're fighting against the elements, whether that be uh, climate or or animals that are going to kill them or just hunger and stuff like that. So it's just team building, I I suppose. So that's why you need that big mix of empathy and and I suppose psychopathy, or, and most of us lie somewhere between the two. Now, what about if you are looking to form a cult? Do you think that? By and large, cult leaders are psychopaths. Probably, I think a lot of them have to be. I think, I think, I, I, I expand the word cult. So I interview a lot of different cult people, and I expand cult to mean anything. And some cult survivors have a problem with that; they don't like that, and I understand that as well. But I would say, like, there's a there's a lot of gym cults. There's a lot of like juice cults, you know, where they really you have a lot of pressure to stay in. Now, 
out of 10, it's not the same as like a Jonestown massacre kind of thing. Uh, it's not even the same as like a Scientology kind of thing. So I think, again, it's on a spectrum. Uh, but I would say that even politicians, um, I mean, if, if you go through like the same kinds of processes we all went through, like school, friends, whatever, and you come to the conclusion in your like 20s, like, I think I'm somebody who should be the leader of this country. I just think like this person's a psychopath or has like a lack of self-awareness. And that's whether they're left wing, right wing, centrist, whatever they are. I think like, and I'm happy those people exist because you need someone to lead. You can't all just be us sitting here like, well, I hope someone leads the country. But yeah, yeah, I don't know. What do you think about cult leaders? Yeah, I think that's a good point about um, politicians. Um, do you think there's something about showing confidence that inspires people whether it's you know i guess truthful confidence or not i feel like we've had this conversation a lot lately um when we're talking about con people mm. well, an interesting thing i heard recently was that um i can't remember what it's called but there's some sort of theory or i don't know but basically you can show pictures of leaders or potential leaders uh to children and they can choose who they like. And that person almost always wins the election. So a huge part of it is about people's looks, which it shouldn't be. It doesn't mean that they're better looking. I mean, obviously, Donald Trump was not like, he's not a handsome man, but there must be something in his posure or his, his posure, his, 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 his gait, his, uh, there's something about him. And it probably is that sort of confidence that you're talking about. So maybe that is what we find appealing. I, I would say that uh, there is less to do with Donald Trump's gait and more to do with the the web that has been woven from his inner circle and the, the web of power that has just been in place for in his family for 100 years. And it's just been so deeply woven into these organizations that he, he literally can be and is a, a rambling buffoon. And people are still following him because they were, I guess, born with the the name on the tip of their tongues for, you know, as long as they can remember. Um, but then you can have like religious leaders, too. Like is a religion, you know, are, are, do you have uh, ministers who oversee their sermons like are these are these psychopaths or is there a spectrum there too well i think that exorcist i i i, I think he might be a psychopath the guy i interviewed um yeah all these you know it's hard to know we can't really um judge and i guess each case is a little bit different but I, again i just think if yeah if you're somebody who thinks i am the son of god or whatever and i'm going to speak to you through god and that kind of thing they could argue on the other hand that they're actually really empathetic and that's what religion is because i think empathy can inspire a lot of religious thinking there's loads of empathetic people who have been very religious and they sort of use that as their set of rules the the religious stuff to go about doing what they think are nice and righteous things right i think that religion has a lot to do with pretty much every war that's ever been started and then they use it as an excuse for example in in our country uh last week roe versus wade was just overturned now that that there's a huge religious right that is supporting that that being overturned and it has nothing to do with religion the people who overturn that don't care about religion they don't care about the kid once it's out of the womb they there's no health care there's no education there's nothing that's given you know that that this kid's gonna gonna get from the government they don't care um that 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 has its roots in in racism Roe versus Wade. They just needed a way to control the black population without saying that they were doing it. Not to get into a whole angry history lesson, but you know, that's religion is used all the time by people in power to manipulate society. And, and it's because people, I don't know, want something to believe in. Yeah. They that, need that, the excuse. That was that drug thing, wasn't it? Was it Reagan or Nixon? It was like the war on drugs. Uh, basically, it was to, Reagan, yeah, to control the black community. Um, but by the way, we've lost about th probably thirty percent of the of the listeners, but the other seventy percent are nothing. Well, we still got about a half hour to go. So we can, we can, <laughs> we'll shake off the way to lose them yeah. as well. It's really interesting the, the abortion because <laughs> people are always. I get people messaging me saying because obviously I do different political things and stuff, and people are often messaging saying, uh, you know, can you see if you can get someone on? who is pro-life, as in they, they don't want abortion,
abortion to be legal, but who is not at all religious, who is a secular person. And I'm yet to come across that person. And, and to me, that's enough of a reason to, you know, dis dismiss it. I've, I've looked into abortion a lot. I don't understand. And if anyone's listening now going, well, I do like abortion, you know, you know, I, I, my biggest fear is, just, you know, losing listeners because I have a difficult, different political view to them. Because the most important, more important than abortion and all that thing is that my podcast is successful. That's much more important. So just if you're not happy, listen to the next one. Keep keep on listening. I think you if you had any listeners from the <laughs> South uh, in America, you might you might have lost a, a little percentage there as well. Yeah. Well, I, if I, I, if I like hadn't, was... they've just gone now. <laughs> yeah, I like that you were heading right towards a Russ Perot impression, <laughs> Pull, pulled up just short of going fully there, but it was very enjoyable. You almost went Russ Perot. Uh, Russ Perot was an American wow. business magnate, billionaire, politician, and philanthropist. I've got, I didn't know who that was, but I do now. Yeah, he ran for president. Is that because I was saying I was saying stuff like I don't care, I just want my podcast to do well, my own thing. It was the accent specifically. You sounded like him for a second. I do declare. <laughs> <laughs> if you could bring it up like a like one yeah. octave you'd be yeah. good. <laughs> why do they always say they declare why do they don't they just declare stuff without having to say i do declare <laughs> oh they have to really emphasize it religious right more like religious wrong <laughs> i was just thinking tim what an amazing american accent and then i remembered that you are from there yeah that was my ross perot uh, can you do british accents oh Oh, of course, of course I can. I love doing my British accent. Not bad, actually. It's actually good. <laughs> good. Hey, you've gone too far, Lance. <laughs> oh, more Cockney. <laughs> more Cockney. Oh, more Cockney. That was good. That was good. Hey. Well, I, I want to tell your listeners, or the listener that's left, um, that we didn't, Ross Perot was not on the agenda either. We are no. all over the place. It's all unplanned, isn't it? But what we did plan, because people are going, right, what about Mothman? Mothman are you guys always oh, talking yes. about? That? Who's yes. Mothman? going on mute. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Andrew, for mentioning Mothman. It was hilarious. When, <laughs> let's, talk, let's talk about Roe versus Wade again. No, Mothman. People want to know about Mothman. You know, I am obsessed with Mothman or the uh, the Blackbird of Chernobyl, as we learned recently. And there was so there was the the original Mothman and a book called The Mothman Prophecies that was written by a guy named John Keel, um, who was later portrayed in a movie called The Mothman Prophecies, um, starring Richard Gere. And it's something that happened in the late 60s where there was a bunch of sightings of this winged humanoid in the Point Pleasant, West Virginia area. And the book is fascinating, um, but the story kind of culminates with uh, a bridge collapse. And so it sort of led people to think that this Mothman was kind of a uh, harbinger of doom um, because he was, I think, sighted or seen on the bridge at one point, like sitting uh, perched atop it. I'm not sure if that's even a credible eyewitness report or just sort of after the fact uh, had mentioned because this was a real bridge collapse where a lot of people died. Very tragic. Um, but we, we spoke about the Mothman recently on Crossbase because there were sightings in, I think it was July or the summer of 2019 around Chicago and Lake Michigan. And we had on an author who wrote a book sort of compiling those eyewitness reports, which are, you know, very modern and, um, really interesting to me. I don't know why, I don't know what it is, but I love cryptid mysteries like Mothman, like Bigfoot and Lance just completely hates it. And which is now part of the fun. <laughs> so that's venturing into myth then isn't it and so so lance you're not having any of that no i really appreciate the story i really appreciate the, the sightings and the exploration into that particular world that that cryptids it's it's very fascinating um but enough's enough with mothman yeah no more mothman the, the story's up been updated <laughs> Need the updates. But we did um who's the guest that we had on that you referenced was Tobias Whalen, correct? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, super interesting dude. If you ever get the chance, maybe we can make the introduction. You can uh, chat with him. Him and his wife run the Singular Fortean Society, which is dedicated to all things paranormal, supernatural, cryptids. And the book was called The Lake Michigan Mothman. I believe it was called The Lake Michigan Mothman, yeah. I've had some of those times when I've had to like interview because you know I do Sean Atwood's show on Wednesdays on YouTube, so I don't have as much choice about who comes on. So I do have 
often there's like Bigfoot believers and people who say that they were abducted by aliens and have been living in space for 30 years and those kinds of things. And it is a hard line to sort of, you know, straddle because uh, you don't want to make fun of someone, especially someone who's mad. But, you know, I don't know what to do. But Tim, you don't really believe in Mothman, do you? I mean, I believe that there were really sightings, like a hundred or so sightings of of this winged humanoid um, over around Chicago and Lake Michigan in the summer of 2019. That was written about in um, legit publications like The Guardian, I think, and Vice and things like that. So people were seeing something. That's clear to me. Um, do I think it was like really a harbinger of doom with uh, uh, glowing red eyes who, you know, kind of defies um gravity as we know it um <laughs> because we know birds are sort of hollow have hollow bones um so no I, I probably don't think so but you know all all it takes is one of those reports to be something that no one knew about and now we're cooking with gas <laughs> <laughs> well I, I i i liked uh tobias's uh analysis of these sightings and he We'll do a lot of research into it. He'll look at the pictures, if any pictures have been sent to him. And one of the solutions that he came up with was that some of these sightings might be attributed to climate change, where birds like cranes, these giant cranes, are being forced out of their habitat. And people in areas that wouldn't typically see a crane like this see something like that in the sky. And... They take a picture of it and, you know, the thing's moving so the picture's blurry and uh, the story develops from there. But, you know, I will say it's it's sort of a shtick that we do with Tim loving it and me hating it. I do find it super interesting, the, especially the, uh, the more famous Mothman sighting where the bridge collapsed. And it's interesting to me that people's imagination can... People can have their imagination run away. Oh, my God. People can have their imagination run away from them. But to have that collectively happen in a time with no social media and all the stories are so similar is, is just a fascinating concept for me as well. Yeah, you're, you're hoping my editor will clear that up and listen carefully enough to, to hear that. But she's my girlfriend, actually, and she, she might she might not. She might because she should be listening to it quite fast and she might not. But now she'll definitely have heard me saying this and she's being like, oh, now I do have to go back and do it. Although now she can't because yep. I've just done this whole bit. So she has to leave that in as well. So you're fucked, mate. I was on um, <laughs> Jordan, Jordan Harbinger's um, podcast, speaking of Harbingers of Doom, um, and he gets yeah. now <laughs> 350,000 listens per episode, right? Three episodes a week. Oh, pardon us. That's insane, isn't it? And I was, so obviously it was a big deal for me and all that. And I was saying the word to disavow someone of something, which is it's disabuse someone of something or to disavow someone. And I, I don't know why, but that was like the day that I decided to say it like nine times. I just, I'd never said that word before and I, I used it wrong like nine times. And he actually then had to tell me like, when you say, uh, do you mean disabuse someone? I was like, yeah. And then my whole facade of like the clever English guy with the accent who knows all the words was just like ripped away. And I'd said it too many times. so It couldn't be edited out. And that was and I had to be like, oh, man, I don't care about that stuff. Like whatever. But secretly, I was thinking like, oh, no, I'm a fool of myself. <laughs> now, see, I feel like you, you have this like very intelligent English guy thing going but you also have this humble thing that that bumps into that so like as long as you just the hugh grant like uh shucks thing <laughs> uh, yes exactly very much of that so as long as you you bring that out too then you're all set no matter what and just you know rest assured if that were me in that situation i would have been saying disemboweled <laughs> I would have been saying disemboweled. We need to disavow disembowel pedophiles of the idea that it's okay to have adult child sex. Um, that is what I was talking about, actually. So, um, <laughs> sure, yeah. Why so, not? Tell me about tell me about Connecticut River Valley Killer. My goodness. Yes, where to begin on that? Well, we we are starting a project um, that is a podcast and documentary. And it is about this uh, valley killer um, who killed uh, a lot of women in the 70s and 80s. And uh, it's in an area that's somewhat close to us 
in uh, New England, and we've been following this case for for years, and we're trying to do a uh, a couple of projects on it. Wait, there's a New England? Yes, New England is. I knew that. Oh, <laughs> I was ready to give you a good geography lesson. Yeah, you have done already, Lance. I think it it, it was you, it wasn't Tim? Was it Lance? It was you ages ago. You were showing me like a farm you were going to and all that stuff. Oh yeah, yeah. I know. I know what's yeah, happening. Yeah, the. The Dean Farm, I believe, I was showing you because yeah. I don't, I don't go to any other farm. Yeah, that's what you showed me, so I know, I know what's happening. But the name is a little misleading, and part of our goal, like a small part of our goal with our project that we're working on, is to assign a new name to the serial killer because the Connecticut River, while it does run a bit in the state of Connecticut, it is mostly in Massachusetts and then up through the border of New Hampshire and Vermont. So the Connecticut River spans. I guess three or four states, but the area we're talking about is the valley between New Hampshire and Vermont that is divided by the Connecticut River. And that's where the majority of the murders took place. And the fascinating part about that area is that it's very small. The community is very small, very tight knit on both sides, on both sides of the border. And about a few years, three or four years before the first Valley Killer victim was discovered, there was another serial killer in the 60s, in the mid to late 60s, named Gary Schaefer. And he murdered a series of children and kidnapped and murdered women and kidnapped one woman who escaped and that eventually led to his arrest. So they go through this incredible time where they have this serial killer one of the first i think this was before they even coined the term serial killer so they had this killer in the area who was caught captured by local police and state police and big victory and then right after that right on the doorstep is the valley killer who is still unapprehended and probably i mean just as bad as that first one as as gary schaefer so that area within the the span of a few years has two prolific serial killers. One of them is still at large and his latest victim. So he was active. As far as we know, all the documented victims were between 1978 and 1988. The last victims named Jane Borowski, who was attacked in the town of Keene, New Hampshire. And a lot of people know Keene, New Hampshire because of Keene State College. Uh, it's close to Mount Monadnock. It's a little bit of a hub in I guess South Central-ish New Hampshire. So she was attacked in 1988 after leaving what was a community staple in the Cheshire Fairgrounds event. So every summer, late summer, August, this area would have this um, carnival type event. There was like bands playing and Ferris wheels and food and games. And it was like this long weekend event. And she left, she's seven months pregnant. She gets into, I think she had a Firebird either a Firebird or a Trans Am, but it was a pretty badass car for the time. And she gets in her car and she's driving home or driving to a friend's house in the, in the direction of a friend's house. And she stops at a gas station and she's uh, thirsty. So she decides that she's going to get a drink out of the vending machine. She goes to the vending machine, she puts in her money. It doesn't accept her money. So she has to go back to her car and get another dollar. She goes back, gets the soda, Ironically, it, it spits out her last dollar, so she gets her first dollar back, and she gets into her car, and she's, uh, she, she's approached, this other, this other vehicle pulls up in a Jeep Wagoneer, and she's approached by this gentleman who exchanged some words with her through the window, and he's, he asks her if, if, if she's from Massachusetts, and if he, she's the one that beat up his girlfriend or something, and... He ends up attacking her, pulling her out of the car. She's kicking. She's struggling. She ends up shattering her windshield because she's kicking so much. And she's fighting back and fighting back. And finally, she kind of frees herself. And she's made a scene. And she says to him, and this is probably her biggest mistake. She says, probably, no, this is definitely her biggest mistake. She says to him, what about my windshield, asshole? And then he comes back and proceeds to, he tackles her and stabs her. 27 times including in the jugular she's like fighting it off with her hands so that he doesn't stab her baby and he gets he's done his job he gets back in his vehicle and he leaves and while she's bleeding out she gets up gets into her car and drives to her friend's house and as she's getting to her friend's house she ends up coming up behind him the the guy who attacked her in his car 
and she gets she she takes the turn into her friend's driveway. Her attacker is there at the front of the driveway, kind of slowly driving. The guy comes out of the house and puts a like a pillow cushion or something on her to like stop the bleeding. They call uh, an ambulance. The guy drives away. She ends up surviving. Her daughter survives, and her daughter has like a great. Has, so Jane has a grandkid. So her daughter has 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 a child as well. Uh, so we we're 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 talking with her. She's a major part of the story, and um, getting some really good stuff. So there's a big human element to it. And we're looking for that asshole. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit amfam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. And how long ago was this? This was some time ago. That was 1988. So that asshole is... 32 years 34 years older yeah maybe not alive but um we we did ask jane about her use of that word it's really hard to come up with a better word for that guy um it's just such a general word for like a bad person who's acting badly um but you know and we even kind of yeah and we even kind of joked about calling the podcast the asshole of the valley um, but we don't want to name it after um, that asshole. Um, but, you know, we, we even spoke with Jane. Like, are you trying, do you use that word anymore? Like, can you imagine that? Like, you know, that, because the guy turned around after that and, and you know, stabbed her uh, more violently. It's just why. And, and what is it about that guy too? Like, do, is that word is some trigger for, for that guy? Like, I hope he's listening. He is an asshole. And it, it, it does sound like it's it's a joke, but it and it is kind of funny. But in that moment, the the worst moment of her life, she attributed that word to an individual. Like that's the standard that she set for that word. So if someone cuts her off in traffic, what are they? They're certainly not an asshole because that's not the caliber of asshole, according to Jane's uh, barometer on what it takes to be an asshole. Like that person's just merely like an inconvenience. Asshole's the the worst thing for her. Whereas I think what, yeah. we, we spell it differently over here, like A-R-S-E, arsehole. But, uh, I think that's how she called him that. I think it would, it would sound a bit glib, wouldn't it, if you had that as the title, sort of, you know, you know a bit... That's why you attacked her. He was like, you glib. <laughs> You're so glib. But, but you, I did, again, I, I had another professor on called John McWater, and he talks about like, how offense has changed over the years. And so in... So it used to be religious words that were the most sacred that you can't possibly say. And now it seems silly. Like, it always seems very sacred and whatever at the time. And now it's like, damn and hell. Like, okay, who cares about that? Even though I know in, in America, in some places, like kids say hecka instead of hella. Like that's hella cool. What do they say? Hecka cool. Um, so even now they have to be a bit careful about some of the religious words. And then it became all about um, bodily stuff. Like, you know, with the Victorians and the Puritans and stuff. So those words like asshole because it's part of the body that was like as sacred as it can get and we moved on from that about 15 20 years ago when like fuck shit ass became less offensive you still don't hear it on the radio though but uh we moved on to identity words which even now because we're going through that now so those words seem like they're really bad words but maybe in 50 years so words the n word the f word for gay people and other words that might describe you know minorities and stuff like that so now stuff like assholes nothing but at that time, that might have felt like someone saying the N-word or the F-word, forget, you know, that kind of thing. It might have felt like that, and it was bigger then. Yeah, it's an interesting point. Yeah. I'm really trying to get uh, – because you guys throw around the word cunt all the time, and I'm really trying to get that flying here in America. I think that we need to take the uh, sting out of that, yeah, well, that word. That's a really interesting one because it's that's right in the middle. Uh, if, if we move from body words to identity words – in in the UK, it is just a body part and doesn't mean anything more. And you call a guy a cunt or like a, a shit, a fucking cunt, or whatever. Uh, with in, in America, 
it, it for whatever reason, who knows why, but it started to get like femin uh, misogynist connotations. So it became an identity word, which is pretty offensive to women. Like their identity word is like, you're a, uh, like, cunt. Like, this is the name of the vagina. Um, but because it's got that sort of identity thing, but it's also, it's not really an identity thing. It's somewhat, it's caught in America, I think, between those two places. Yeah, I guess it kind of is. It kind of is an identity thing in America if you only call women that, right? Yeah, maybe that's what happened. It's kind of like being for men. Men are called dicks all the time, you know? That's true. You wouldn't call a woman a dick, and maybe you should. <laughs> right. You, you were talking about, and a sort of last big point here, uh, victimless crimes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. See, that was a subject that just started popping up a little bit more recently. We had heard a lot about victimless crimes when we were producing the uh, Empty Frames podcast that we have uh, like three seasons of. And it's primarily about the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum heist that took place in Boston in 1990 in March. And we threw that around a lot, that this was a, quote, fun mystery It because it was victimless and the more you dig into it it's like well there is there are victims here aside from the physical uh human that is tied up down in the boiler room while the crime is being committed i mean is he a victim he must have suffered some sort of trauma from that um the people who appreciate art no longer get to see this art the museum itself the memory of isabella stewart gardner who loved her art is is the memory of victim and then we were talking about db cooper and how he hijacked a plane while he was in the air and jumped out uh after securing a ransom of 200 and something thousand i think it was 200 yeah and and we kept saying well it's it's people love that mystery because he you know no one's found him and it's essentially victimless. And we said that on the air and we got some comments saying, well, perhaps you should consider the flight attendants who knew that this was happening. They were probably terrified. And we've talked to people who have researched D.B. Cooper quite a bit. And as far as this person's found, a lot of the, the flight attendants did speaking engagements and went public with what happened. And none of them seemed like they were truly affected by it. Uh, and he didn't let anybody on the plane know that they were being hijacked like the people found out after the plane made an emergency landing and they they were told that they were hijacked and the guy jumped out so they had no idea so i just thought it was an interesting philosophical question to present at this episode like what's your feeling on what what is it is is it just what's the word to use when one word and another word don't go together an oxymoron to say victimless crime can you that shouldn't even be together in a sentence yeah, I suppose they're victims because the passengers' days have been ruined, right? Because they've had to they've they've landed somewhere else. And it's not it's not the worst kind of victimhood, is it? I've had my day ruined, but if somebody came over to you and picked you up while you're walking down the street and then moved you like a thousand miles away and then you had to be like, "Oh, what am I going to do now?" You'd be like, "I've been the victim of some sort of weird attack here." True. Right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a small it's a smaller scale obviously than uh you know missing person or being the loved one of a missing person or a murder or something like that or being the victim. Or, or jane yeah or jane who was nearly um killed herself and and her daughter um and i i do think the isabella stewart gardner um museum heist uh made us all victims honestly the culture the art if people who enjoy art are victims in that case because there are masterworks that uh, will probably never be seen again, at least in good condition, I think it's fair to say. Um, so that, you know, we're all victims a little bit there. And obviously, Ms. Gardner, but she was gone um, afterwards. And, uh, you know, in D.B. Cooper's case, I do, you know, I, I don't really regret using that um, term in the, I guess, the intro of that episode, Lance, because we only got a, a comment or two. And, uh, you know, I think... Um, I think it's about as victimless as we can get when, you know, we're talking about a spectrum. Like if you look at every single case we've ever covered or episode we've ever done, like uh, w that one was on one complete opposite end of the spectrum to almost every other uh, episode. So at least comparatively for us, I think it's safe to say that was victimless. Where, where can people go and find your stuff? Where do you want to send some of these 
eager listeners for more podcast stuff. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I don't think you gave your answer to this. Um, I did. I said there was a vic- there, there were. Vic- oh, I think it's a really interesting point. Actually, oh, you I mean, use that. Okay, it's, it's something that yeah. I've not. I've actually never thought about that before. So I really like. I really like that. And I, I can. There, is there such a thing as a victimless crime? And I, I think let's leave that to the listener. Get in touch with all three of us uh separately you don't do like a chat by putting i don't know if they could put like the four of us in a we'll be in loads of group messages on whatsapp with with listeners um but you know let us maybe tag us all on twitter or something and and let us know what you think because that's is there a victimless what is the most victimless possible crime i suppose you could say not paying your taxes but because it's such a it's such a tiny amount you know in terms of the, the victims but if we all did it I don't know. I, I I suppose taxes is close to it, isn't it? Not declaring something is pr- very close to victimless. Yeah, I think when banks get ripped off, people don't have the empathy for for banks because they know that money's insured and it's not coming from anyone's pocket necessarily. Yeah, but it's got to come from somewhere. I, again, I don't know anything about economics, but when more money has to be made to go somewhere, there's inflation. So I don't know. Someone get in touch with us all. Let us know the perfect. I don't do this every week, by the way. I don't end on like a really traditional TV 1980s. Let us know your thoughts. Right into P.O. Box something. Uh, let us let know us your con- thoughts. <laughs> Miss Piggy. So was that Miss Piggy? Or was that Kermit or was it Jordan Peterson? That's- that was Ross Perot again. Uh, Chime it? in on the comments. Oh. We'll see you on Twitter. Oh, right. At first it sounded, I thought it was Kermit. And I, I like... It was a little Kermit-like. It was Kermit. That's more like this. We'll see you oh. in the comments section. I like that. And I think it sounds very similar very to subtle. Bill Gates as well. He's got that voice. You know? <laughs> I'd have to listen more to him. I don't know. Here, here at Microsoft... Um, <laughs> Uh, here at Microsoft, and then Jordan Peterson wow. as well. Like, uh, y- you know, uh, <laughs> it's you know, men are suffering. So, <laughs> that's uh, you never seen those three in the same room, Kermit, Peterson, <laughs> and Miss Piggy. Where did tell me? I've got to go and play football. Tell me where people can get your stuff. Yes, um, check out crawlspace-media.com for links to all of our sites, or you can search crawlspace in your favorite podcatcher, Missing, and Empty Frames. That's about art heists. Thanks a lot for having us on, Andrew. This has been a lot of fun. Oh, thank you. Thank you for coming. Have fun playing soccer. Oh, thank you. Oh, I probably won't. I'll probably injure myself. I'm getting old. Thanks, guys. That was a lot of fun and very educational. I learned a heck of a lot and hope you did too. Not the guys who came on the podcast because they already knew the stuff, but the people listening, which is you. Catch their podcast. That's Lance and Tim's podcast, not your own podcast. Crawl Space, Missing Maura Murray. These are two podcasts they've done. Catch them in all the normal places. They're brilliant. And there's just hundreds of episodes to crawl through. They're on Twitter and TikTok too. So am I. TikTok's booming. It's kicking off. It's picking up. Lots of new followers on there. Catch our bonus segment on patreon.com slash Gold. We go on chatting for a good 10-20 minutes. And follow on YouTube for the video versions. I chat on the side of the video for the live showings on Mondays and Thursdays at 9pm UK time. So every new episode then goes out later that day on YouTube and usually I'm there to chat with you all. That's all for now. Please keep reviewing this podcast on Apple and CastBox and I'll see you next time.